Hi, I'm Lee Keough, Editor-in-Chief of NJ Spotlight, and I'd like to welcome you to our new conference podcast series. Today's program is from our NJ Spotlight on Cities event, held October 16th, 2015, at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center in Newark. The Prize, by Dale Rusikoff was one of the most celebrated books of 2015. It looks at the efforts to transform the Newark school system through the much-heralded $100 million gift from Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. We invited Dale to put together a panel of some of the teachers she follows in the book to expand on its themes and talk about the realities of school reform. Dominic Lee, Joanne Belcher, and Princess Fee Ami join the discussion. I don't know if I need a lot of explaining to this crowd what uh, what this is about, um, but uh, Dale, who I've known for many years, our sons all grew up together in Montclair, um, ventured into this book that, you know, four years ago, was it? Five years ago, and I was like, what, are you crazy? Um, and But we, you know, journalists... God bless her for doing the, the stories that, that we didn't uh, and, and putting it into a narrative that, that was incredibly compelling and well-researched and well-written. And she, you might have heard of it, the prize. Um, <laughs> and she's gotten a little attention, you know. There's a couple of uh, small outlets have, have written her up. Um, and, you know, we now a month out from published date, I... I uh, wanted to do something a little different with it because I think that people are familiar with the story at this point. And I asked her, would you moderate a panel of some educators in your book um, and talk about their lives? I think sometimes, and, and to me, the most compelling, some of the most compelling parts of her book were, or, or all of them, uh, really all of her anecdotes out of the schools and out of the classrooms uh, as an education writer, I was like, wow, um, how'd she do that? And, and she told some stories about, about um, you know, the real life of, of Newark schools, even beyond the headlines that, that the gift had uh, generated. And I said, can we, you know, recreate that to a degree and talk a little bit about it? And so she was willing, and, and I, uh, you know, worked with her character, the characters, you're not really characters, you're real people. Um, <laughs> But I, you know, I, I asked her to reach out to as many as we could get, and um, and she got this incredible crowd. So if you will just introduce them, uh, Dale, a little bit, so they, uh, I think they're in the book, in our program, but you can attach a face to a name, and then take it wherever you want. And um, we are like other sessions, we're going to take questions. Um, mostly, we'd like to do it through the index card method because I just think it, it works better and it's a little cleaner. Um, so, if you don't have index cards, I can get them to you. If you do, just wave it, and I'll bring it up, or I'll, I'll read it myself, and we'll see where this goes. So, thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thanks, John. Um, well, it's great to be here with Dominique, Joanna, and Princess, and I'd like to just tell you a little about them. Um, I'm first of all, just so glad that we can do it, do a panel this way, because so much of the discussion of the book seems to be about policy about you know charter schools versus district schools and about you know whether you start at the top or you start at the bottom um, and the things in the book that I found you know most inspiring and heartrending <laughs> to write about were those stories of the the kids and the teachers in the classroom and that's what they you know what what they're all about and these are three people who always wanted to teach in cities um, didn't want to be you know, teaching uh, suburban kids or kids whose needs were not the highest. They wanted to be with the kids who needed 
the best teachers the most. Um, and um, so I, I'll tell you a little about them, and maybe they can even tell you more about themselves. But um, Princess is from Newark. She grew up here. She went um, it, to the Newark schools and finished um, graduated from Westside High School, but in between won a scholarship from a, from a better chance to go to a private school, and she went to Kent Place in Summit, New Jersey for several years. Um, but she, she actually has lived through and triumphed over a lot of the challenges that her own students um, live through every day, and she brings that knowledge to the classroom along with a tremendous gift for, for teaching. And the combination of knowing firsthand the, the lives and stories of your students plus being an excellent educator is a very powerful one. So she's going to talk about that. Joanna Belcher is um, from Pennsylvania and the daughter of a lifelong public school teacher. I think he was teacher of the year, uh, fourth grade teacher of the year. Um, and um, so she's, she came to education very committed, um, singly committed to um, district public schools, traditional public schools. She was she, she was anti-charter originally, um, <laughs> and um, what what changed her mind or what caused her to look into um, the charter schools um, and the KIPP schools in particular was an experience she had in um, California in Compton where she was teaching. She's taught only in inner city schools, first in D.C., um, in Compton in California, and now um, as a leader of um, education. Well, she was a, a school leader and now a leader within the KIPP network. Um, but she, she, she was the founding principal of Spark Elementary School, which is was the first um, KIPP elementary school in Newark. Um, Dominique Lee is from Michigan, and um, he also knows firsthand the challenges of growing up in poverty um, and um, the academic challenges that come with that as well. Um, he he um, graduated from the University of Michigan and came to Newark as uh, with Teach for America um, and was at Shabazz High School for four years. Is that right? Yeah. And... Um, was very um, alarmed by how incredibly far behind his students were and how much of his time was spent just trying to get them to a level um, of competence to understand high school work before he could even teach the high school work. And he had an idea um, that there should be a concerted effort to work with kids at the ground level, not in high school, but starting in the earliest grades, early childhood even, um, and and build the skills in uh, in K through eight that could then lead kids to be capable of doing high school level work. Um, and so he formed an organization along with several other teachers, including Princess Fisami, which is called Brick, Building Responsible, Intelligent, Creative Kids, um, in which they they try to go school by school and work with um, intensively on teacher development to address the issues of learning that kids bring to the classroom every day. And I think he's learned a lot. Um, I think he, he initially thought that a great teacher was all that it took to overcome the challenges that kids bring to the classroom, even in the poorest cities. And I think he no longer thinks that. So um, we have a lot of learning and a lot of experience here. And um, so, as I said, we were going to just try to tell, you know, some real-life stories of kids and teachers in Newark. And um, so I'd like to start with Princess, if I could. Um, she, 
Princess taught at Brick Avon, the first brick school, for four years? Yes. Four years. And um, as of last year, has gone to Spark Academy, the Kip Elementary School. And I wanted her to tell you about the kindergarten class she had her last year at Brick Avon, um, because that was a class of 26 children, of whom 15 had dyphus cases. So those were children whose families had either, you know, neglected them, or the children had been exposed to violence or to drugs, or they were hungry, or there was a level of family instability that required the state supervision. So she had that class, um, and I just thought she could tell you about what the challenges were. And then think she, she also had a different experience at when she came to Spark, um, working with children, some of whom had the same troubles that her that the children at, at um, Avon Avenue had and how the school handled them differently. So she was going to tell us about that. Um, good afternoon. It's a pleasure um, to be here and to speak to you. Um, I want to preface my story with um, I'm a firm believer that um, principals, schools um, should have the autonomy to make decisions about their budgets and how um, money is allocated to meet the specific needs of their school. Um, my experience my last year at Brick was that um, I had several scholars in my classroom who um, had IEPs, um, individualized education plans, who had specific learning needs or learning disabilities, who also had social emotional issues that didn't really surface into the middle of the year. Um, one student I remember in particular, um, he was actually transferred into my classroom from another kindergarten classroom um, because he was very unsafe and um, throwing furniture, hitting teachers, um, hitting students, throwing things, just very emotionally unstable. Um, at one point he went to a behavioral program um, where he stayed there for some time and then re-entered Brick Academy and was in my class. And he was exhibiting the same behaviors. And I remember feeling, um, I didn't feel empowered to support him or even know where to begin. Um, we tried like interventions that we know about, um, talking to him one-on-one, -on -one, um, also sitting him in a different seat, trying different strategies um, at our disposal, and they weren't effective. And so when you get to that point as a classroom teacher, you're, you're saying to yourself, what happens now? Um, and as I reached out and my assistant um, teacher reached out, um, what was coming back to us from the district was that, you know, we need to see more interventions. And so it didn't we didn't see a breakthrough in terms of like services provided until almost March, um, where actually Brick itself um, was able to bring in someone, a, a social worker, or um, someone who would provide therapy for that particular scholar and help us to craft a behavioral plan that met um, his particular needs. But um, in the interim before that, um, it left our students, the other scholars, the other 25 exposed to um, unstable behaviors. So it became a very unsafe environment for them. I found myself teaching in a classroom and seeing projectiles flying, um, kids ducking from time to time and teaching them how to model those model the right behaviors or ignore distractions. But when you think about it, um, you don't want your own child or any child to sit in a classroom where 
it's the norm to just ignore distractions in order to learn or to feel unsafe. And so uh, my first priority was the safety of all children, and even the one child who was being unsafe, making sure he's safe for himself. Um, And because he was getting a lot of our attention in terms of myself and my assistant teacher, we had other scholars begin to copy or mimic that behavior. So we started out with one major behavior problem, um, I would say in November, and ended up with five or six um, at the end of the school year. And it was very hard for our scholars to meet those goals. So um, we were very frustrated um, because the district... Um, at that time had laid off a lot of like the social workers, um, laid off a lot of like the support services. And so schools were sharing child study teams um, and kids weren't getting the help they needed. Um, And then to um, juxtapose that with my experience my first year at Spark, I I teach inclusion this year and I taught inclusion last year. And we had scholars who, um, scholars with autism, scholars who exhibited unsafe behaviors. But what I noticed was a big difference is that when we reached out to our school team, we had a team of support members who would come in, observe, give me feedback, sit and help me create sit and help me create um, behavior plans for those particular scholars. Um, People would take them one-on-one or in small groups for counseling or even for small group instruction. We actually had an interventionist who would come into our classroom and take those kids in small groups. And our kids with special needs made great, phenomenal um, gains um, that first year. But it was because there was a a team in place to support scholars. and a team in place to empower teachers. Because I think what happens is we see these things in our classrooms, especially in inner city communities, but we don't know where to start with the help. Um, And if we can educate teachers, provide professional development, empower them to own their classrooms, we would see um, greater results. Mm. Um, Well, that leads very well into Joanna, because Joanna was the founding principal of Spark Academy, and she is the reason, well, she, 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 with the resources that she had, she built these supports that were available for Princess to call on to support the kids who really needed much more help than, uh, than great teachers could give them alone. So I was thinking, could you tell us how you looked? I mean, she, she started with a budget and a school, and she figured out what to put in place to support the, the kids so that teachers could reach them. How did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. Um, so I think before, prior to, you know, coming to Newark and preparing to open Spark, um, I think my experience working in D.C. had a really big influence, uh, even before I started teaching, on how I viewed setting up my school. Um, so when I was in college, I did an AmeriCorps program where we were, my university was partnered with a neighborhood in Southeast DC and we actually lived in the neighborhood over the summer and ran a full day after a full day program, summer school for students. Uh, looking back, I'm not sure why they allowed us to run summer school, uh, for our students who were significantly below grade level, uh, because we were, you know, young college students without a lot of, uh, training, but, um, we We had a really incredible experience in that, you know, we lived down the street from the housing project where all our students lived. We spent a lot of time with them after school. And so we confronted a lot of the challenges I'm sure all of us faced when teaching. Um, Our students, you know, witnessing violence or going through crisis. 
not having enough food, uh, attendance challenges because of transportation, uh, difficulty with childcare, mental illness that wasn't getting addressed. So we, I think that experience uh, gave me a kind of a lot of insight into the importance of the school partnering very closely with families in order to ensure that kids were successful. The school where I worked uh, was wholly unable to support kids. Um, they had teachers not showing up and there was no social worker. Um, the, 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 just the systems and structures to support kids were, were almost non-existent. And as a result, I really saw the impact that that lack of uh, support structures had on kids' investment in school, their ability to engage. I started with a group of kids, about uh, 15 kids in second grade, and followed them through fifth grade. And by fifth grade, most of them were just so not engaged in school. They were falling very far behind academically, and it was just extremely painful to watch that happen and know that we could have prevented it had we put other systems in place. So I taught for four years, but fast forward to opening Spark, I was fortunate we were the first KIPP elementary school, but we weren't the first KIPP school in Newark. And so I got to observe our middle schools, which were open, and you know, I went and they had three social workers. I was coming from teaching in Compton, California, where we <laughs> definitely didn't have a social worker or an art teacher, a music teacher, any of that. And it's like, you have three social workers? You know, what do you do with them? And I realized that we could really, with our budgets, design a program that met the needs of our kids so that our teachers weren't spending 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. every night doing some of the things that our social workers who are more qualified and more trained could do during the day. So I went into Spark thinking, we know the challenges our kids confront. We know some of the struggles our families go through, and we believe it's our responsibility as the school to create structures that deal with those challenges. Uh, we're not going to just you know, blame parents, blame kids. We're going to create a school that's responsive. Um, and we were fortunate enough to have the flexibility to do it with the budget. So that's, that's the kind of mindset, I guess, that I went in with. I don't know if you want me to say anything I'd like else. to know just the specifics of yeah. how you decided what supports to put in place. Yeah. Or structures mm-hmm. to put in place. So I knew that we needed to have um, counseling for our kids. I knew that we needed to have enrichment programs like art and music that would help them be able to express themselves, find different venues to be successful. Um, And I also knew that I really wanted our teachers to take a lot of responsibility for building relationships with families and because I think that's the first step in being able to support students socially and emotionally. You can't help support kids and families if families don't trust you, if you don't have strong relationships. So on the staffing end, I designed our model so that we would have uh, two teachers in our kindergarten classrooms since uh, getting our kids kind of accustomed to school, to our routines and procedures would be really, really key in kindergarten. Um, We also, as we grew, added social workers and we specifically hired people who were trained in play therapy or in um, other types of strategies for working with kids who had gone through crisis. 
And then as our school grew, we added a dean of students um, because I had watched, as it describes in the book, one of our teachers who was most successful engaging families. She had worked in Newark at Sussex Avenue for years. She um, had incredible relationships with families and kids uh, throughout the city at this point. And I wanted her to be able to teach our teachers to do what she did, which was build incredibly strong relationships, figure out what made each child uniquely motivated, and then design experiences for them that would help invest them in the classroom. And so I decided to create this new position for her where she would be able to work directly with families and with kids who are struggling the most, uh, but also teach our teachers how to do that so that all of them could impact their classrooms. Thanks. That's really, really interesting. Now, okay, so Dominique has been um, head of BRIC, which is an organization that is trying to lead the turnaround of two very, very challenging inner city schools um, in the South Ward in Newark. Um, what do you think um, <laughs> is stopping you from doing those kinds of things that Joanna just talked about? I mean, is it is it money? Is it uh, autonomy? Um those yeah. are two of the three. Yeah. <laughs> so um, good afternoon. So as Stella mentioned, I lead Brick, which is an um, organization that focuses on restarting chronically failing schools. So um, I want to preference what I'm about to say on the spectrum. And at each spectrum, you can look at community and you can look at efficiency. And I don't know that spectrum is how I'm going to get my answer is that um, to run a high-performing school, you need the freedom of the fundamentals, which is human capital. You have to have an effective human capital pipeline, being able to get, you know, 20 million princesses and not being forced to go to a pool and get, you know, a crappy teacher. And that's just the truth of the matter. Um, You have to be able to have as much resources in terms of providing the services for children and have the ability to maneuver those resources in an appropriate way, as Joanna has mentioned. And last but not least, you need autonomy from people who sit downtown and think they know everything, but they unfortunately do not, um, because change happens when you are as close as possible to the people you serve. Change does not happen when you are 100 yards away. Change happens when you are as close to the people you serve. So being part of Newark Public Schools, unfortunately, we have a system um, that was created in the 50s and 60s as an employment agency, the prize, right? It was a prize to get a government job. And that was, and that, at that time, that was appropriate because, unfortunately, because of our structural racist society that we had then and still have now, many people of my color in black and brown and people in the cities were not able to enter into different types of markets. Public service was a way to sustain a quality life. So public schools at 20000 per head, you know, was able to become the largest employer in the city, first or second, and employ as many people as possible, maintaining still services for the school. But aha, something happened. <laughs> there was this thing called parent choice. And parents start to choose other options. But what happens when it costs you $15,000 to educate a child? You get 20, you have 5,000 extra, so you can assume a lot of risk and responsibilities, basic business practices. But as you continue to see parents opt for a better system, that system cannot accommodate as what, uh, the staffing levels that it had before to keep the city alive. 
So on one spectrum, side of the spectrum, you have traditional public schools on the community side, right? And what I mean by that, it's not like we're a better community. It's just an employment, we are an employment agency for the city, and we have to recognize that. On the other side, you have efficiency. And this is what Joanna has just mentioned, right? Joanna said, I'm putting as much money into my instructional program as possible. So as a community, we're stuck not being able to do what's necessary for our children and go to the next level because we're part of this system that was created for adults 40 years ago. So the question becomes, as a community, how do we balance the two of these, right? You know, and that is a fundamental question. What do we do? Some people argue that we just basically blow up the system, but what happens when the largest employer is no longer the largest employer? Where does these citizens go to have jobs? Is a question. So uh, we are on the other side of the spectrum, unfortunately. We are hopefully going to transition to the other side of efficiency. Um, we submitted an application yesterday for um, conversion to a charter structure. Um, so that is what prevents a lot of traditional public schools, unfortunately, is that we are thrown into an environment that is not set up for us to be successful. You know, it's interesting because yeah. all three of you told me well, when I first yeah. met you two, you told me that you would never work for a charter school. That's correct. And, uh, Joanna, Joanna told me that before she learned about KIPP, she would never work for a charter school. And now you have all of them saying that they're going to work in charter schools or they're going to try to turn district schools into charter schools. Um, and, okay, since you're the most recent... <laughs> To do this, I mean, are are you give? Have you just? Is there no hope for district schools? Well, I, I mean, think how, between the three of us, we're not driven by ideology, right? Right. We're driven no, that's by. That's the interesting thing. It's not about. It's not know, that, It's not right. about private versus public. Right. It's about what is it about? It's for us, and I can. I think I know three of you, uh, two of you, very well. Is that we're here to serve children, right? So I did have an ideology, right? Which was I want to try this within the traditional public school system. Yes. I have realized. Um, through many wrestling moments of my heart, my mind, um, stressful moments internally, um, conversations with community members, that it's just not the best way. It's just not. And then, you know, I had to combat, you know, what is the difference? What's, what's the difference? You know, there's really no difference. Because we had charter schools in, um, before, um, after the slavery movement, right, when, when in the South, White philanthropists would send money down to, for black schools, and blacks would open up their own schools, right? So we had these innovations before, especially in the African-American community. Your son wrote a paper on this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we had this before, right? So I think it's, I'm not driven by my ideology. I serve people, and at the heart, that's what I need to do. So I have to let that go and do what's best for the people I serve. You know, the... Um, the thing that strikes me is that, I mean, if, if more and more district schools convert to charters, this won't be the case. But right now, 60% of the children in Newark are in district schools. Um, and I've talked to um, teachers who have left if district schools to go to charter schools because of the belief that they no longer were able to serve kids in the way they wanted to in the district schools. And they they look back on those schools and say, you know, they feel guilty. They feel like kids are still in those schools, and those schools are in crisis. They're, you know, the budget, um, the budget problems that you talked about are very real. Um, you talked about the uh, social workers having been laid off, support staff being laid off, and the needs of the kids in Newark are so extreme for this kind of support. So, I mean, I, 
I'm kind of wondering why can't we fix the district system? Um, I mean, you were in it for you've been in it for a long time. You were in it for a long time. Are you convinced that it can't be fixed? Well, I think it's a larger picture of our economy, right? <laughs> so our economy is changing, and we're becoming less reliant on low-skill jobs. So as we continue to move on the spectrum of not being reliant on low-skill jobs, and we're reliant on high-skill jobs, when only 15% of the age 18 to 30, 40-year-olds in Newark have a college degree, you have a, a lot of individuals with low skills, right? So as we continue to move away from that, that in our public school system is experiencing that, right? So we spend, on Avon, if you look at the CAFR file, about $800,000 on concilio services, right? Now the question is, where is $800,000 going to clean a building? Um, so you just have a lot of these jobs that we currently have. And the question is, can we, one, retool many members of our community for other jobs, right? That requires a lot of public policy and a lot of people at the table. Um, it requires um, some of our union friends to let go of certain things um, because that's just not, we can't afford these certain systems anymore. It requires a lot of people to come to the table. And the question is, and this is what has given me the ability to let that go, I don't think people are willing to come to the table. I agree. And that's where I'm at, yeah. <laughs> I agree. Just to build upon that, um, I think there's a lot of talk about wanting to collaborate right. or talk about wanting to fix things, but in the forums that I've witnessed and sat in, you still have people sitting on their side of the room or their side of the table. And, and what it really comes down to is like being truly committed when we say we're in this for children. Right. It's not something you say with lip service. That means if I'm in the service of children, then I'm making sacrifices. And I think as a city, we're not in a place where we are comfortable or willing to make sacrifices in order to see our children be successful. Sacrifice means, okay, certain things, certain, serv- certain people or certain positions that we don't need will need to be removed. Or thinking creatively, how do we empower teachers to be leaders in schools and to take on more responsibility? You have a lot of people, a lot of teachers in schools who have pursued advanced degrees that are not being utilized and put into work. And so we have um, a lot of positions in the district, um, I would say, in, in, at Two Cedar Street, um, that we, we don't really need. Um, and then just making those hard, tough decisions and sticking to them because at the end, our, our, our children are not being prepared. What motivates me are my two brothers. My, um, the brother that comes after me, he attended Newton Street School for elementary. Um, my brother was classified with dyslexia in elementary school, told he would never be successful. He could never learn. Um, my brother left eighth grade reading on a fifth grade level. Um, my brother now attends um, Kane University where he's pursuing his, his bachelor's, but it, it took a long struggle. Um, my other brother also attended Newton Street, and then he attended Link Community Charter. That was our first experience um, with charter schools with, with my younger brother, and then he went on to Seton Hall Prep, graduated from University of Scranton and Hofstra this past, um, this past year, um, and What I want is for all children to experience a quality education. 
um, in an education that meets their specific needs, that celebrates them as a learner, that pushes them to be critical thinkers, to challenge things, um, challenge the status quo or how things are. And I think we're not doing a good job of that as the adults um, and that we need to do better by our children. Okay, I, I think we have to ask for questions. Yeah, we have, right? we have a couple questions. One, um, following up on what you, you guys were talking about, I think, Dominique. Um, but the, the, you know, and the role of the unions uh, in representing you and supporting you, Princess, when you were in the district dealing with the issues you were dealing with. Uh, Dominique, you know, you're managing people who are part of the NTU. Um, you know, speak to the role of the unions. Charters, by and large, I don't think, Joanna, you're a union shop, last I checked. Um, not. Oh. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, you're, you're not alone in, in the charter sector. You know, there are some. I think there's a misnomer that there are no charters that, uh, that are unionized, but there aren't, they're certainly not the majority. Speak to that. Does it get in the way, um, you know, or the flip side, does it help support you in other ways? Um, whoever wants to take that one on. So let me preface, I am not anti-union. I've seen the power of a union when my grandmother was a principal and the superintendent at the time went after her. Her union was there to protect her. I don't think the the notion of having a CBA is a problem. What's the problem are policies that are put on the books that prevent success from happening. For example, when there is a layoff, Based upon seniority, I'm not saying seniority cannot not be part of the algorithm that we use, but it should not be the sole reason that we lay off teachers, right? So unions, in terms of a collective bargaining, and even char- even though charter schools are not unionized now, I can guarantee you in 10 years they will be. It's just a natural progression. As charter schools become at least 40 and 50% of this district, there's no way in hell that we can keep the charter school sector not unionized because there's going to be one crazy principal at one crazy charter school, and they're going to be ones that create the domino effect, right? So it's going to happen because that's naturally what happens in business. So everything's great as you restart, and then all of a sudden some crazy person comes, and it just creates a domino. So it's going to happen. Um, so, but in terms of the union CBA, no, but the policies that are put on the books is a problem. Another question. Um, within the current, I'll, I'll just read it, within the current political and financial constraints, what has been the single most impactful action that can be brought to scale in low-performing districts? What, you know, what is the one thing that can make a difference in, in a district as opposed to um, a single school? That's a question. That's a hard one. That's a question from Camden, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I just want to point that out. That's that's from Camden. Does it have to be one? Uh, he said single, so I, you know. It's single underline. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think I know who asked that question. <laughs> Thoughts? I mean. I would say fix the human capital pipeline. I was going to say the same thing. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I think having strong, all the research shows that strong principals and strong teachers make incredible differences in student academic achievement and outcomes. So all of the things that are in place that hamper us putting strong leaders and strong teachers in place, and then once they are in place, allowing them to uh, do what they need to do, um, I I think we would all agree that human capital is probably the biggest Let me follow up on that, though. where the role of testing and, and performance measures. I mean, you've talked a lot about supports, and mm-hmm. we had a great session with Father Ed earlier who, mm-hmm. who talked about um, schools needing to, you know, target the heart and not so much the head sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, 
you know, a lot of your successes are your test scores are pretty good. Um, and, you know, speak to the role of the testing. You know, a lot of people decry the testing as, as really hurting education. I don't know if that's something that, that is your point of view. Uh, others want to speak on that. I mean, one of the things that, um, you know, speaking for KIPP, that, I, that really appealed to me about KIPP is that we base school success not just on testing. We actually have um, uh, six questions that we ask to determine if our schools are healthy, and they vary from our students staying with us. So if we're a school that has really high test scores and we also have high student attrition, that's not a good school. That's not a healthy school. Um, we look at our eighth grade graduates and whether they're not just getting into college, but whether they're graduating from college. And we devote a lot of resources to helping them stay in college and troubleshooting um, that that experience so that they can actually graduate and go on and be successful. We look at if our people are staying with us, so our teachers, because we know if teachers are turning over year after year, that's not creating the type of institution we want to serve our kids. So Our test scores, one important measure, yes, of course they're part of the puzzle because at the end of the day, we're here to ensure that our kids achieve academically, but we also need to look at many other factors, and I think it's very important that those are not um, set aside in the discussion. Is the character, somebody asked, is the character development piece in charter schools different than it is in public schools? I mean... You know, I mean, there's a lot of, these are neighborhood schools where families have gone for generations even, and there is a, you know, there's a camaraderie and and family involved, community involved there. Is it a different, in terms of, you know, how you teach? Are you focusing more on character at all uh, in community building and charters than you might have at at Avon? So, um, what I will say is this. My experience in the district, prior to Avon, taught at um, Alexander Street School, um, Annex, and I think just reflecting on my experience in the district holistically, I've seen pockets of it happening. So, in a school building, you can have a teacher who feels that um, character development or social emotional learning is very important and will emphasize that and create a program or research on their own, go to PD on their own um, to learn different curriculum or um, learn different strategies that they can incorporate in their classroom. I haven't seen something across the district where we're pushing or um, emphasizing social-emotional learning. Now, my last year at Brick, we brought in responsive classroom, um, which I, I thought was an amazing, amazing program and really changed the, the culture the last two years, rather. Um, in my classroom, and teachers who implemented it, it, it definitely set a new culture in our school. Um, what I've learned or what I've seen since I've joined the KIPP network is that across the network, especially with our initiative this year of One Team, One Sound, really pushing academic culture and also social culture where it's uniform across the network. So if you walk into a KIPP elementary school, you will see very similar elements in terms of school values, how we celebrate those values, how we introduce those values to kids, what we say to children to... um, teach them about their behavior and their choices. So you see a lot of uniformity and consistency across schools, across grade levels, um, and across classrooms. And so I really hope, because where we need to move is thinking and being mindful or cognizant of uh, a culture of poverty in our city that really impacts how people think, 
how people act, their behaviors, their habits, their decision making, and really um, look into how can we develop, cultivate um, strong leaders in our classroom across um, the district. Don't want to cut you off, Dale. If there, there's more questions, but if you want to explore some things, don't. Oh well, I, I actually, when when you were talking about um, what is the one factor or that that should be um, focused on, you know, if they, they could really make a change systemically, um, I would I agree with that. But I think also having getting resources from the central bureaucracy yeah. to the classroom so that those principals and teachers can have the effect um, on kids. Is, is a critical piece too, um, and I, I still, um, you know, this question of whether districts are just, um, you know, like like you, I, both uh, Dominique and Princess were saying that they don't believe that people in Newark are willing to come to the table to make the tough decisions to get resources out of the central office to the classroom because that means jobs. Um, I just still believe that maybe that's because there hasn't been enough real public discussion and public education on what the choices are. Because um, I think if people could see what children could get in the way of support if you got those resources to the classroom and then see where those resources are going now, I think it might be, you know, and, and there could be a real kind of engagement on those issues, a public engagement. I wonder if it would change because... Um, you know, for example, in, in the District of Columbia, um, they closed, I think, 15 schools last year mm. as uh, in an effort to get more resources, you know, to the classroom because there were so many schools that were under-enrolled because of the growth of charters. And they took an entire year to do that. Um, they had... Um, Community, you know, meetings with the communities where the schools were located, meetings with the parents. The, the meetings were held on weekends and at night so everyone could get there. They had a website. People could send in their reactions. And they, the, the district put out a proposal that then was changed pretty significantly based on the public input. Nobody was happy that those schools were closed, but they felt that they kind of understood what, why that choice had to be made, and it was made in a way that was at least responsive to the needs of neighborhoods and communities. So I just feel like, you know, Newark has been done to instead of done with so much that I don't think there's been a real opportunity to, you know, to really take in what a tough choice is. It's just here's what's happening and everybody fights because it's obviously being imposed instead of being done collectively. And I, I just, I, I hate to think that you have to, just throw out the whole system um, without making a concerted effort to engage the public in a real community. Yeah, when you say um, bringing people to the table, when somebody just asked, what, what people are we talking about? I mean, not, not names, but who are you talking about? Are you talking about big community meetings? Or, you know, who, who needs to come to the table? What roles need to come to the table to, to address some of these things? Well, I, mean, I think, you know, teachers in the most troubled schools need to be the, you know, the first participants, and I think parents in those schools, um, and I think, you know, whoever the leaders are, the, you know, whoever's leading the district, whether it's the state or, you know, locally chosen people when there's local control, um, but I think there has to be a realization that this system is going to crumble and die if it doesn't change, and isn't it preferable to try to rethink the system 
um, as opposed to just having it die. I mean, are people... Because, you know, these union jobs are going to go away if the district dies. It's not like there's, you know, some... The, the alternative isn't let's all keep our jobs. That's just not going to happen. So if we figure out how to reconfigure what the jobs are so that the district can survive at a smaller size, um, you know, that, that might... I mean, if, if people really understand that that's the choice. In other words, there's not a great option. It's a choice of, you know, options that people would rather not have, but they're, they're thrust on them. So if that, you know, if that's the choice... Then maybe people can com- maybe people can compromise is what I'm saying. Can well, I just add on to that, yeah, Bill? Please. I think the if you talk to parents, I think they would definitely come to the table. <clears throat> but I think unfortunately, a lot of our inner city communities, the people who control the power, are not the community, unfortunately. And that's what I'm thinking about when coming to the table. I think if you're correct. If we had a parent revolution here, things would be definitely different, right? This would not be happening. Nothing. Like, of what we're saying, but I think the people who control the politics, um, the um, business community, well, there's a lot there. I don't think they're willing to come to the table, right? So it's like, how do we get the people who have the power to come to the table, right? These are the same people who say, keep the system the status quo, but yet we'll send their child to Mount Claire Kimberly Academy, right? So it's like, I want to maintain my power. But on the other hand, I'm not sending my child to those schools. And I think that's what scares me. And I think that's what scares the living hell out of me because I don't think they're willing, right? Because as you said, they want to keep the prize. But there's 40,000 children of school age in Newark. And um, that means that there are at least 40,000 parents. Right. And they vote. Or they can yes. vote. So if we had a parent, I definitely agree with you. If we had so that, that'd be why powerful. couldn't they vote? Why couldn't they vote against somebody who's not, you know? I, I, I mean, I would love a parent revolution now. Because, I mean, even our own conversations, as we explained the parents converting the charter, they are totally fine with it. And I was scared at first, you know. I was like, oh, my gosh, you're not going to like us. But they're like, ah, that's better for my child, you know. Um, so I think you're right. It's just like, how do you do that parent revolution? Like, demand that the vote with your feet, you know. I mean, yeah, vote, vote at the polls. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Smaller, smaller but I'm, I'm curious. Uh, the educators, well, you're all educators, one way. But would requiring a master's degree in education in order to teach public K-12 help or hinder student outcomes? I mean, those kinds of, in terms of pipeline. I'm, I'm the extreme on this. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. I, I, I've heard you answer this. So I'm the extreme. I'm very biased against this. No. It makes entirely no sense to me. I don't understand. And in fact, I wish we can get away with teachers going to college. I don't think teachers should go be going to a four-year college sitting on the campus. They need to spend at least three years underneath a master teacher than just become like an apprenticeship. You know, maybe one year of some content on the college campus, but the next three, just be in the school, man. I mean, because when you're hiring teachers straight out of college, you're just like, seriously, I got to retrain you. And they spent four years on a prestigious campus. So I know I'm extreme on this. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that um, definitely you will want teachers who are experienced or had experience in the classroom. I think what made me effective um, as a classroom teacher was that 
while I was in college and deciding what I wanted to do with my life. I was America Reads tutor, and I sat under teachers in New York City and learned some of the practices that I, I've used in my, this will be my 10th year of teaching. Um, but I also worked in daycare. I wor- also worked in pre-K classrooms before I, I came to Teach for America and did alternate route. Um, and those experiences shaped how I led my classroom. But I'm no way, in no way, shape, or form, the teacher I was my first year. So I say um, definitely have teachers spend more time or teacher, people who are interested in the teaching profession um, spend more time in the classroom. I think if you have an advanced degree, that's not enough to impact children. I think um, teaching is a, a gift, um, a high calling of sorts, and um, a degree won't um, be the determinant for, for that, your effectiveness. I think we're, we're going to have to close up, but I want to give Dale at least a chance to, if there's some final words. You wrote the book, so if there's an epilogue to the epilogue. Um, and, I, and I also want to add, uh, before anyone uh, splits up, but uh, one, one role that sometimes doesn't get heard and is going to be heard today is, um, is the voice of students. Um, and I think uh, after this session, we have a couple of Newark kids, Newark public school kids uh, from high school, um, who are going to speak a little bit from their perspective, not so much on the book or anything like that, but for being kids in, in, uh, in Newark. So hopefully you all can stick around for that. Dale, do you want to help close? Well, um, I guess I... I started off saying we were going to talk about stories of kids and, and not talk about the policy debates of charters versus district. And then we ended up talking about the, the charters and districts. Um, and um, I guess my, my, my hope is that the district can move toward um, you know, getting the resources to the classrooms so that district schools can serve kids better. Um, and just as I think charters, the competitive pressure that charters put on district schools has, you know, moved a lot of them to get to try to get better. I think if we don't have district schools, the district schools are, you know, the, they serve everybody. You know, there's like the, the neediest kids are in the district. Um, the kids whose parents aren't there to advocate for them are in the district. A lot of those kids are also in charter schools. But I think that the fact that, you know, that, that you, that, I mean, we now have two systems in most cities. We have charters and districts both serving significant numbers of kids. And I think that one is always a check on the other and a goad to the other to get better or to do more. So I would hope that we can find a way for both of them to survive and thrive. All right. I think we're good. Um, thank uh, very much this this esteemed panel for uh, joining us. Give us a hand. Give them a hand. Thank you for joining us. For more information on NJ Spotlight or to offer comments, please go to njspotlight.com. To learn about this specific conference, visit njspotlightoncities.com. Production services were provided by professional podcasts on the web at beingthemedia.com. For everyone here at NJ Spotlight, this is Lee Keo. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.